tracking. Today we'll be officially introduced to the life of David through the story of David and Goliath. Super important story, I think. Uh, for the most part, though, when we look at the story of David and Goliath, we're, we mean well, but we do harm to the text and the original meaning of the authors who are writing that story. So it's very popular, everyone knows it, but I think, I think we're looking at it the wrong way, so we'll dive into that in a moment. But first, last week, review. Last week, I talked about how the biblical authors extract plot point settings and meaning from the foundational stories of the Bible and then infuse them into newer stories as the Bible unfolds. So what do I mean by the foundational stories? The biblical authors take settings and themes and plot points from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They take out them and then they infuse new stories in the Bible with those same elements. Now, that's kind of hard to understand in the abstract. Last week, we did the perfect example in, hor- in order to, to properly understand this. If you are a Star Wars fan, uh, you'll love the next two minutes. If you're not a Star Wars fan, it's, the suffering will only be temporary. Okay, Star Wars does exactly what I'm talking about, just again and again and again. The first Star Wars movie to come out in the theaters was called A New Hope. And in A New Hope, the bad guys are chasing the good guys. The bad guys and Darth Vader are chasing after Princess Leia, the good guys. And Princess Leia has secret information about a hidden character that she puts into a droid, R2-D2. R2-D2 is then told to escape because everyone knows we're all going to get captured. R2-D2, with the secret information about a secret character, is sent to a planet, a desert planet called Tatooine, where he's captured by these annoying little creatures called Jawas. Now, R2-D2, with the secret information about the secret character, is captured by the Jawas, but then the hero of our story, Luke Skywalker, saves him. He takes R2-D2 and the ever-so-annoying C-3PO, Um, and brings them to our hidden character, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then the iconic scene where in blue projection, uh, Princess Leia tells Obi-Wan Kenobi, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are my only hope. Bad guys chasing good guys, secret information on a robot sent to a desert planet, saved on the desert planet, brought over to give the secret message in the blue projection, okay? The new Star Wars series, The Force Awakens, begins the exact same way. So you have bad guys chasing good guys, but the bad guys in this time aren't Darth Vader. They are someone who looks a lot like Darth Vader. I wish that would have been awesome if that phone had Darth Vader ringtone right now. Now that would have been awesome. That would have been nice. It was too happy and fluffy for Darth Vader. Um, He's a very troubled man with a troubled past, this poor Anakin character. So you have the bad guys chasing the good guys, but not Darth Vader, it's Kylo Ren. And instead of Princess Leia, you have Poe Dameron putting secret information about a hidden character onto a little droid, and the little droid escapes to a desert planet, not Tatooine, but Jakku, and is captured not by Jawas, but by this character, who a person knew at last service, you get bonus points if you know this character's name. No, no, the guy who captures, everyone knows Rey. That's the easy one. Not everyone, but that's an easy one. Who's Who's the... Who's the equivalent to the Jawa now? This is extra geeky Star Wars points. Let me talk. His name's Tito, by the way. His name's Tito. Remember, she goes, Tito! She pulls out a knife on that little guy, man. Now, at this point, you know, by seeing the old movies, oh, I see what's happening. This Ray character, 
She's a, a, a new Luke Skywalker. She's a new New Hope. She's the new Jedi. You know that. Now, if you hadn't seen the original tri- trilogy, you'd still be liking this movie and still moving along, but people who know the old one inside and out are picking up on little subtleties. So then you go, oh, that little droid has some information about a hidden character, and we just got to get it to the right place. And guess what? Blue projection, hidden character, not Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now it's Luke Skywalker again. And just in so if it like wasn't clear, guess who shows up to, to blue project the other half of the map? R2-D2. So they're doing the plot points, the settings. They even do it with some of the filming. See the parallel. So in order to get the full meaning out of the new stories, you need to be saturated in the old. And the more you know about the old story, the more you get stuff in the new. The biblical authors do this all the time. It's all over the place. And so if you don't see the parallels, that's fine. Just know you have to, you have to watch the old trilogy again and again. You have to dig into the Old Testament. Genesis appears everywhere in the Bible. It's like, it's, it's, it, once you're saturated, you see it's everywhere. This is just working out of Genesis again and again and again. Think of it like this. Genesis has this climactic plot point where God tells the serpent, one day a child of Eve is going to come and crush your head. And then the book of Genesis just goes on. But that promise is foundational. Every king of Israel, every leader, you're longing to see the person who is finally going to crush the head of the serpent. And those themes and those stories, they're all interwoven all throughout. Last week, we went over a, a story that begins the book of 1 Samuel, which ultimately leads to the life of David. And in that story, we talked about how the Ark of the Covenant, which has the commandments of God, is taken captive by the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant represents two things, very important. It represents the personal presence of God. God sits on top of the Ark as king, which is the second point. The Ark represents the kingship of God. So when you think about the Ark, you're thinking about the king enthroned upon the Ark. So when the Ark of the Covenant is taken out of Israel, it's a way of saying symbolically the personal presence of God is removed and the king has been defeated. Leading up to the life of David, where is the ark? It's with the Philistines in the temple of their god, Dagon. If you're, if you're new to South Valley, the Hebrew name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, represented by these four letters. So in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, God's name is Yahweh. So Yahweh is a captured, conquered opponent by the Philistines, and he's been taken captive and placed in the temple of the Philistine god, Dagon. In the ancient Near East, this is like prisoner of war motif. The god of Israel is defeated, and he's a POW in the prison of the Philistine god, Dagon. This is how the story unfolds, though. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashad. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. If you were here last week, you know the next verses are like some of the most awesome things to ever happen in the Bible. This is so good. So it's like, oh, the God of Israel is defeated, and he's a captured, defeated POW. And when the people of Ashad rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. That's, that's good. That's awesome. So you have the idol, the image of Dagon. 
fell face forward. They put it back up because, you know, clearly Dagon just slipped. Next day, let's put him back up. Falls over again, and his head is chopped off. This is the first encounter where the God of Israel faces the God of the Philistines, Dagon. This is a cosmic spiritual type of battle that's being depicted. All of this leads up to the story of David and Goliath. Now again, this is a very popular story. Many of us are familiar with it. Even if you weren't raised in church or you're not a Christian, you know like the, the story of at least somewhat the David and Goliath. You could never go to church, but if you watch sports at some point, you heard like, oh, this, this NBA Finals is a real David and Goliath story. Like, like it was, like this time. Like, like, I know I'm making the fans, and a lot of Warrior fans here, and I'm making, I'm equating them to be Goliath, the bad guy, but it was just true. Like, the Cavaliers were, are horrible. They're really bad. They're like a mini David. They're like a runt of a David. They're like, reject, they're, they're so bad. They're so bad. They should just play LeBron versus the Warriors. That should be, I'm sorry for the, the two Cavaliers fans in the room. You might have to find another church, but it's just true. It's just true. It's so bad. It's so bad. It's so bad. You know, and this motif is picked up in like another example is the greatest cinematic, um, you know, dis- display of comedy in human history in Nacho Libre. You, you have Nacho Libre, the David character, versus Ramses, the Goliath figure. But I'm convinced that the way we're approaching this story um, leads us to conclusions that the Bible doesn't want us to land on. So let's dig in. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And it camped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Okay, so think in pictures, think in images. The biblical authors always want you to imagine things. The Hebrew worldview is based on pictures and imagery, so you can't just read a text and move on. You have to picture it. What's going on? There's two hills, and each hill has an army set upon it. And in between the two hills is a valley. On one of the hills is the Philistines and their armies, and on the other hill is the Israelites and their armies. And in between them is the place of battle. So hold that in your head. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the height of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Now, you don't need to know what all those measurements mean, but you already know, like, who, what's up with this Goliath, dude. He is a big, bad dude. He is tough. He does not mess around. He's like just a monster of a man. His, I mean, some of these descriptions, when you get into him, it's kind of cool to be like, his armor would weigh like 120 pounds. And there's all kinds of debate about how tall he was. Um, on the low end, somewhere six feet. On the high end, maybe nine feet, but somewhere between then. So it's not like, you know, when, if you grew up in church, the picture Bibles had Goliath like 30 feet. And like, no, it's like between six and, and, and nine. And we all know that that's a giant, because after a good solid like five, seven, 
you know, it's excessive. It's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Six foot nine. Now, there's another interesting thing about this six foot giant that's, in, that's listed in the text, but it doesn't come across too well in English. Right in the center of the description, it describes Goliath wearing a coat of mail. Now, what's interesting is this is the longest sort of description of armor or like old school military technology found in the Bible. And we talked about this last week. Whenever the Bible decides to like describe something in detail, it's really important. It's really important. It's a big, long description about Goliath. And in the middle of it, it says he has a coat of mail. The Hebrew word keseket is what's used for coat of mail. And the Hebrew word literally means scales. Scales. In every other instance in the Old Testament where this Bible, where this verse is used, it means scales of fish or like scales of a serpent. Now go back to images and a Hebrew worldview. You need to picture everything. We know from armor in this day would have been at minimum shoulders to knees, maybe shoulders to, down all the way to the floor. So what do you have? You have a super giant that's surrounded in scales. Scales. Picture it. Hold on to that thought. Let's keep going. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is what we'd call a contest of champions or a battle of champions. It's something that happened, not all the time, but sometimes in the ancient world. There's old stories about these things. But essentially, people decide, how about we not like slaughter each other and like kill everybody and only a few get survivors get to have a good day? Why don't we pick like our top guy and have him fight your top guy? And if our guy wins, we win the battle, you become our servants. If your guy wins, you win the battle and, and we'll become the servants. It was kind of a way to, to say, let's not just all kill each other and fight, we'll just have our representatives go forward and fight. It's a contest of champions. In addition, you have to be asking the question, if this is a contest of champions and they've have, it, the Philistines have sent out their best, who should be going forward to fight Goliath? Israel's best. Now, if you were here last week, there was a long description about the physical characteristics of a certain individual. And who was it from last week? Saul, the current king. So you had Saul, who's the current king, and a few chapters earlier, he's described as the tallest See, the Bible just got something against these tall folk. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear, man. I, I don't, it's just some problem. If you're over that six-foot line, you're on Team Goliath. I'm Team David. Um, so who should, who should be going, in, in the contest of champions, who should be going forth for Israel? It's Saul. He is described as the tallest. He has stature like no other. He's the strong, tall, buff dude. He should go forward and fight their champion, but he doesn't. He's not there. Now, in addition to Saul not being there, there's some other things that are going on in the text. 
Goliath is said to defy Israel and defy the God of Israel. The word defy here is karaf. And yes, it means defy, but it also means like shame or mock or deride. And what's incredibly interesting is that this description of Goliath mocking God occurs six times in the text. Now, if we review some of the details, it looks a little something like this. There's this big giant going around who's, who's covered in scales. What do you picture in pure scales? What images come to mind? And he's six, feet, six cubits, and the head of his spear weighs 600 shekels, and he accuses and slanders God six times. A whole lot of sixes there. Now, if you're familiar with the Hebrew worldview, you know that number seven really good, really good. Three sevens in a row, super good. Six, bad. Six, bad, really bad. It's the number of, seven represents wholeness, completion, uh, perfection. Six represents, it's like man's number. It's man trying to thwart the, the will and purpose of God. Now, it's one of those things you can't be certain on, but when you see a lot of sixes in a passage like this, you have to ask the question, is the author wanting me to think something? At the end of the Bible, there's this super monster, and he has a number, and it's 666, the opposite of 777. Also, for instance, when Solomon's gold, are just, Solomon's gold is described and it's being depicted as this like, kind of evil acquisition of wealth, he has 666 gold. So you can never be certain, but it's like the, the biblical authors are cluing you into something. Oh, so there's this giant scale-like, serpent-like monster who's six cubits tall, head of his spear, 600 shekels, he mocks God six times, and he stands defying God. And by the way, the text tells us how long he's been doing it for. 40 days. Now, if you've been brought up in church, and you've seen the original trilogy a lot, you go, oh, 40 days, that's that's like not just a normal number in the Bible, right? It's, it, it, it's, it's all over the place. Is there anyone else who goes into battle for 40 days or 40 years? Think, oh, Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years. Oh, and then like in part five of this movie, way down the road, someone's gonna go into the wilderness and do battle with the serpent of old for 40 days. So if you know the stories you hear the echoes and feel the vibrations all over the place. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with it, that's fine. That's why you just gotta keep stick, sticking at reading your Bible again and again and again. And then you'll see all these little clues all over the place. The biblical authors extract plot points, themes and settings from the original stories and then infuse them to kinda get a, points across. So what does all of that say? It says Goliath is just not a giant. He is a giant that is representing kind of like the satanic motif. He is the symbolic representative of Dagon himself, the God who is against the people of Israel. So when Goliath is spewing forth all of these blasphemies and slanderous words, it is not just something simple like a man. It, it represents evil and tyranny and wickedness. And when the people of God hear this, there should be a response. In particular, Saul, there should be a response. But when the people of God, of Israel and Saul, hear all this is going on, what do they do? 
When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were scared. They were afraid. Saul should be out on that battlefield. And if not him, who's the next? Who's the next strongest? He should go out. No one wants to challenge Dagon's representative. No one wants to fight the monster, the beast. Into David. David is the son of a guy named Jesse. He's got eight brothers, and he's the youngest. And so David is just chilling, like doing his own thing. He's a shepherd. His biggest worry is like counting the goats or something. We don't, we don't know. But his dad says, your brothers are on the battle, the battlefront, so, so go bring them supplies. And the text actually says some of the supplies is cheese. So it's like, hey, David, go bring your brother some cheese. They're hungry. Bring them some supplies, get them some cheese. So David goes to the battlefield, and as he's delivering the cheese and the supplies, Goliath comes down into the valley. You picture the giant, six foot, covered in scales, walking out, declaring his blasphemies, and David hears them. And this is important. This is not David's fight. David isn't a soldier. David isn't on the front lines. He's just bringing some cheese over. If it was me or you, would be like, yeah, that dude's scary. That's Dagon's dude. Here's the cheese. Later. <laughs> this is not David's fight. But when he hears Goliath slandering Israel and the God of Israel, he can't take it. He can't take it. It's like something in his gut. The honor of the God of Israel matters. The glory of the honor of God of Israel matters. It's like he gets this gut kind of tension, this angst that says, we can't just sit around and put up with this. Who is this Philistine who slanders our God like that? Who's doing something about it? He looks around, no one's doing anything. So he goes, then I'll do something about it. I will go forward. You got to understand, this isn't his fight. He's just a little kid. He's a teenager, older. It's not a little kid, but he's still, it's not his fight. Just the cheese boy, the cheese errand dude. Go back, count the goats. He goes, I'm not going to, I'm not, no, someone needs to put an end to this. And my life is not as weighty as the glory of God. So he basically volunteers for this mission. Saul, King Saul, gives him his armor, but the armor doesn't work probably because it's too heavy. We don't know. He's just a younger, smaller person. He's not a man of war. So before David goes to battle, he tells the people this. Your servant, speaking of himself, has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. That's good. Like, from here in the next 10 verses, this is some of like the most epic, awesome, biblical language. It's, it's, it's it doesn't get any more epic than this. It's like old school, just like, oh, what up, man? I'm not, I'm not afraid of you, you uncircumcised Philistine. And this is what's going to happen. David says, I've been saved before. God can save me again. And more importantly than that, everyone else is afraid because in, in their kind of worldview, I, you're going like, 
is, is your God dead or distant or far off that he can't save you? For David, it says in the text, I, I worship the living God. God is not dead or distant. He's near and he's close and he's alive. He is present with me in my circumstance. And if you have an understanding of reality, an understanding of the way the world operates that says, no matter what's going on, I serve a living God who knows me and loves me and knows the hairs on my head and is ever present with me. That changes the way you approach the problems of the world. It fundamentally changes it, sets you on a different foundation. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul and the Israelites go, okay, why don't you go fight him then? It's kind of crazy, but this is what happens. David walks down to battle, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, Dagon and others. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Now go back to images. Now there's a valley, and there's two hills, and the armies are there. When Goliath comes down, he is the Philistine's champion. He is the representative of Dagon. He is Dagon's man. David comes down armorless, defenseless, can't carry a sword, so he brings a slingshot. And up against the Goliath of Gath and the, the scaled armor all around him is the armorless boy with a slingshot. But beside, besides him is not Dagon, it's the God of Israel. So you have to picture this. It's almost like layered on top of these characters is the, the spiritual battle behind them. You gotta understand, like, this is scary stuff. This isn't like, when, like when, when Goliath says, like, come down, I will kill you and give your flesh to the birds. Ancient world is brutal. Like, for the most part, we're pretty soft as, as modern Americans. We're pretty soft. Like, David goes down not thinking, like, okay, we're gonna spar, and then if he beats me, he pins me, and then we go be their servants or something. And it's not even as nice as something like, oh, he beats me, and then he cuts off my head real quickly. No, no, in this time period, you knock that kid down on the ground, and then you humiliate him. You purposely inflict pain. You make him die a slow, horrific death while his family and his people watch, as if to say, don't mess with us. So David is going not only with his life on the line, but the type of death he may face. And Goliath mocks him and the God of Israel. How does David respond? Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Dude, come on. That is so good. Like, you, like that shit, you, I'm surprised you can't even be sitting down anymore. You're like, yeah, man. It's like you're going to watch like a heavyweight boxing match go down. Like, are you kidding me? That young David just said that to the giant? Now, notice what David realizes. They're going to go into a physical fight, but it's not just a physical fight, right? David is going in without a sword to prove the point that isn't just a battle that's in the physical. There's a spiritual reality to this. And he's going to show Philistine, the Philistines and Goliath that there is a God in Israel. 
this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beast of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord and he will give you into our hand. Not gonna fight just with the sword. That's not how, that's not how this things work. God saves not by the sword. And so he goes in, and, you know, the, the, the tension is building in this story. You know, we're used to happy movies and stuff, but people at this time, they, they just know the, the brutal reality of life. Most of us have never seen that. Maybe if some of you who have um, seen combat in the services, you know that even when your side wins, the horror that took place is incredible. It's immense. You don't even want to think about it. This is, this is the brutal reality. And David, the, the youngest brother, goes in to fight the champion, the undefeated champion of Gath, David, Dagon's representative. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone, the stone sank deep into his forehead. I'm sorry, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Now, have we recently heard a story about Dagon falling face forward? to the ground. Yeah, yeah. Now, also, has Israel been constantly looking for someone to come and crush the head of the serpent? There's illusions everywhere. And if it's not clear, check, check this out. So David prevailed over the Philistines with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So encounter battle number one, Yahweh defeats Dagon. Dagon falls face forward and gets his head chopped off. Encounter number two, the representatives go forth and Goliath is slain, falls face forward, stone in head, gets his head cut off. And it's all the layers saying, this is more than just a fight. This is a cosmic spiritual battle. This is more than just a fight. So all the illusions are coming, coming to our mind at this point. Now, what happens usually at this point in the story? This point in the story, people want to apply this story to our lives. And it usually goes something like this. We'll call it the I hero version of the story. Lowercase i, one word, I hero, like an iPhone. I hero version of this story goes like this. You know, when I look at this story, I know that I can be like David. That if I have a little bit more faith, God will help me conquer my personal giants. And your personal giants fill in the blank. They may be a career thing. You know, I'm going to slay that giant. It's a career path thing. Or maybe it's a... Uh, career advancement, or maybe it's something more noble. It's not just you know, your own personal gain. It's like your, 
your insecurities, that the Goliaths in your life are your insecurities and your doubts. And those are all worthy things of fighting, but go back to the story. David doesn't have a fight in this battle. Goliath is not his personal giant. So what do we do with the story? We say, Goliath is like a personal giant. If I have enough faith, I can conquer my personal giants. Goliath is not David's personal giant. David is just trying to bring some cheese to the soldiers. And when he gets there, he hears God's name being slandered and he can't take it anymore. It's not about David's personal giants. It's not about him overcoming his fears. It's about the name of God being slandered and someone saying enough is enough. It's not about our personal problems. But what we do is we immediately want to make the the Goliath personalized to us and then we get to be David in the story. We get to be David. Imagine that. Think about this. All of Israel and Saul the king, they're cowards. They're afraid. None of them's willing to fight Goliath. There's one dude in the story, one guy who is courageous and brave and willing to do what it takes, one person. And when we read the story, we go, well, that's, that's like me. I'm David in the story. I'm the one that's like no one else in all of Israel. How very Disney of us. We're always the special, unique one. We just followed our heart and we defeated our personal giants. You're, you're not David in this story. I'm not David in this story. Who, who are we? We're these guys. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And if you know, you're honest with yourself, you know that's you. That's me. That's me. I'm not David in this story. Whenever we read these old stories in the Bible, we, we go, I'm like Moses in this story. I'm like Abraham. I'm like Moses, the most righteous man of his generation. It's not me. I'm the coward on the sideline. I'm the one soaking in my own shame while my God is mocked. It's not me. And here's the other thing. It's not just true of us as individuals, is this not the state of the church in America? While wickedness and nonsense runs rampant, Christians cowardly stay quiet. Wickedness grows every single day. I mean, the stuff that's being said in in our culture right now, it's nonsensical. It's evil. It's wicked. Good is evil and evil is good, but we don't want to cause a fight. You know, we don't want to cause a ruckus. We don't want to make this awkward at the dinner table. We don't want to might lose our job by speaking up. David is the man who says, my reputation, my life is not as weighty as the glory of God. We have a church in America that wants to be liked and accepted more by a culture that hates their God than be faithful before their God. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. So just stay quiet. We don't make a big deal about these issues care more about being liked than being faithful. And in the story, there's one person who, who, who is righteous, David. He's the one who goes against Dagon, the serpent, who's been uttering blasphemies for 40 days. It's not us. It's not me. Now, with, with Christianity, the good news is, is that there's always good news. So once you recognize your proper place in the story, you can then get to the good news because there is good news. Yes, we are all cowards, 
and we ran from the tyrant, the monster, the beast, the serpent, but there is one who comes to crush the head of Goliath. See, David doesn't point to you or me. David points to the greater David. He points to, to, the, to the greater king, the king of kings, who would go do battle against the serpent of old Satan, who would go out in the wilderness and battle for 40 days as Satan uttered his blasphemies against God. And the text tells us in the New Testament that when Satan had done all he could, he went away to wait for an opportune time. The opportune time was the crucifixion. And what does the crucifixion depict? Think in images. It's Jesus dying on a cross with the cross going into the top of a hill. And what is that hill called? Golgotha, the place of the skull. Everything always points to the serpent crusher. Everything is always leading you to the same hero, the same champion. It's not David, it's not you or not me, it's Jesus. He is the, the one who fulfills the promise found in Genesis. And all the allusions in the Bible, they all hint at and gloss at, and so you think, maybe Saul's gonna be the serpent crusher. No, no. Maybe even David, after he killed Goliath, maybe he's, he's the one to finally be the good king. In the rest of this series, we're gonna see, even though he was a good king, tremendously flawed. All of our mini heroes point to the real hero, the real champion, Jesus. Now this is where the good news is even better, is yes, you have enemies in life, you have giants in your life, but you can't approach this text by saying, if I just have more faith, then I will defeat my, my giants, because you, you, you can't muster up enough faith to do that. But you understand something. Remember how the story began. The champion's victory becomes the people's victory. The champion's victory becomes the people's victory. And so when you realize that someone has defeated the greatest Goliath in your life, Jesus has defeated your greatest enemy, Satan's sin and death, and he gave a death blow, crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. When you realize that, his victory becomes your victory. And something similar like to this happens. So David prevailed against the Philistines with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah with a shout pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. When you realize the one giant has been slain, you charge the problems of this life differently. You interact with your personal Goliaths, your personal giants differently, because you know the main one has been defeated. So what you want to get out of this story is personal inspiration, and that's good because that's where we end, but you can't bypass the right freeway to get there. We just want to be, I'm David. If I have more faith, God helps me with my personal giants. No. Jesus is your champion, and at the cross, he defeats Goliath. You stand in that victory, and then it gives you courage to know, I serve the living God who is not dead or distant, but near and close, and therefore, I can go into battle with confidence. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Take courage, for I have conquered. It changes the way you interact with everything, and you can say boldly, even if I die, even if I lose it all, my life, my reputation, my glory is not as weighty as the glory of God. And you go forward with confidence. Changes the way you live. Changes the way you act and interact with everything. We're going to close with communion and a song. 
The ushers can start passing forward communion. This is what I want us to do in this time. We've been taking communion every week and we've been focusing on three elements of communion. This is incredibly important and formative for our church. Communion is a time where we remember the cross, we confess our sins, and we proclaim and pledge our allegiance to King Jesus all over again. This is how I want us to apply the story of David and Goliath to communion. I want us to reflect on our sin, specifically where we have become cowardly in speaking truth. There's a culture that promotes evil and wickedness nonstop, but we'd rather play safe and comfortable and be accepted than speak truth. Where in your life has that been true? Work through confessing that to God. I want to say a special note to the young people in the room, and I'll say young, 35 and, and under. I'm 34. And there's no definitive line. Just in general, this is true of young people. This message is going to be a lot harder for you to apply and be faithful to than the, old, than the older demographics in this room. If you're, you, are, you are roughly 50 to 55 or older. You have an easier time doing this. If you're 35 and younger, this will be incredibly difficult to you for a number, number of reasons. One, you got a career ahead of you. You got possible spouse ahead of you, new friendships, college, all of this stuff. To be faithful in your context will cost in your context will cost you something. See, if you're if you're 65 and thinking about retirement, you're not as worried about losing your job or your career path. You're just like, I just got to keep it for a few more years, or maybe I have to stay there. But you, you you've worked, you've been there for 20 years. Maybe you got some seniority. You young people, if you want to climb the corporate ladder, you want to have a successful career. Trust me, in this culture, that will be incredibly difficult for you to do while remaining faithful to Jesus. It'll be incredibly difficult. If you be faithful and become a truth teller, you may lose friends, you may lose a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you may lose your job. You speak out against some of this evil that's in there, corporate world will eat you alive, put you on a blacklist. But David is a man who saw the living God slandered and he couldn't take it anymore. Couldn't take it and he had to do something. Your job, your career, your boyfriend or girlfriend is not as weighty as the glory of the Lord. It's difficult for every single person in this room, but I feel for you if you're, if you're a younger person. This, this culture is different than it was 30 years ago. It was always evil in different ways, but there's, there's, there's a new thing. Secondly, you've been trained to be liked. Social media has wired your brain that when you say something online, it gets affirmed. And those affirmations actually make you happy in your brain, I mean, like literally, chemically. And so you've been trained since an early age to be liked and seek approval. It will be very difficult for you to be approved by men and also be approved by God. But David is a man who spoke truth. Become truth tellers, get good at it, be gracious and forgiving, and know that your God has delivered you from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he could deliver you from anything. And even if you lose something, Count it all, all lost compared to knowing Christ Jesus. Think about ways in which you might have sinned and not been faithful. And then two, as we enter to communion, remember, remember the cross where Jesus defeated your Goliath, defeated the serpent. And whatever sins you have in your life, whatever they may be, at the cross they find forgiveness. So you don't feel guilty about past unfaithfulness. 
You say no condemnation. Now, God, inspire me to be faithful in the future. And lastly, as we stand, the third part of communion is where once a week we re-pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. The people of Israel were cowards, and they, they, they forsook their God. And as we take this and we sing this closing song, this is, this is the, the, the pledge I want you to have in your mind. Even if all of my people, my entire culture, the entire generation turns their back on you, God, I pledge my allegiance to you. I give my faithfulness to you. Even if the whole world fades and turns away, I will remain faithful to you. Paul tells us, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and then he had given thanks, and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's close in reflection and song. If you know the words, sing it. If not, reflect on them and re-pledge your allegiance to Jesus today.